There's many <laughs> fast track versions of therapy out there, apparently. But some of the, the best work is the messy stuff, the uncomfortable stuff. Yeah. And when you break through that, what do you get on the other side? Oh, freedom. I'm Sarah Tobin, and welcome to the Tapping Into podcast, the place to explore a whole host of different, natural, alternative, and spiritual ways to change your life. My goal is to support you on your healing journey, whether you're planning to become a mother or already have children. Motherhood can often leave us feeling like we don't know who we are anymore. And this is the space to explore how rock bottoms and different modalities can often lead to the greatest joys. So get ready to come on a journey with me and enjoy. Welcome to episode one, and we kick off the season by chatting to Anna Mather. She's a mum of three, clinical psychologist, author of two books, Mind Over Matter and Know Your Worth. She's a regular on the public speaking circuit and an expert used by a host of newspapers and magazines. She has her own podcast, The Therapy Edit, which offers 10-minute nuggets of golden therapy for you to take into your life. She's charming, honest, vulnerable, authentic, and just a pleasure to talk to. In this episode, we talk about how our coping mechanisms as children become our way of life, how we've numbed our feelings to survive the pandemic, how some of the best therapy is messy and uncomfortable, and how therapy removes boundaries and barriers that stand in the way of living a full life. She drops some awesome one-liners such as, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal, and what's in you is what comes out under pressure. If you've ever been curious about therapy or even do therapy yourself, you'll really resonate with what Anna has to say. I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi Anna, thank you so much for your time today and for being on the Tapping Into podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. And how are you today? You've just been on live on Women's Hour. How amazing is that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun actually. I just, I love chatting these topics through and I think it's hard as always, I kind of come off those things and then I start thinking, oh my gosh, I should have said this or why did I say that? (laughs) And I think it's all, I always try and remind myself that, No one else knows what I could have said or didn't say. And I find that quite helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll have the same thing after this podcast chat. (laughs) All the things we we wanted to say. (laughs) But we only have an hour or so. So diving in, I'd love to know your background because obviously I've seen and worked with you and have seen your rise in popularity, your books being published, your membership that you'd created and all sorts of things amazing coming out of your psychotherapy training but how did you get to that where did it start your interest in other people and human nature yeah I think I often wonder like how much of it is to do with nature and how much of it is to do with nurture because my mom is also a therapist we actually trained at the same time even yeah and even before that she was a physio and she worked with so I lost my sister when my sister was kind of six, nearly seven. And I feel like that's shaped so much. But my mum is always someone who has helped me untangle things a little bit. You know, even if there was someone that was mean at school, she she kind of helped me work through that. But also we spend a moment thinking about what might be going on in that person's life, what might have led them to treat me in that way or say those things. So I think there's always been a real awareness of, you know, I don't know, just the deeper sides of people. And she's always 
kind of taught me compassion, which I've always found so much easier to to kind of, yeah, to offer other people than myself. But that's that's another (laughs) side. So the other side of the story is that in losing my sister, it just she got cancer when she was um, she was diagnosed when she was two. So I was 10 when she died. So I must have been six. And when you go through something like that as a child, it kind of takes over life like that is the biggest thing that is going on. And, and no matter how normal or boring or mundane that day is, it still shapes. It shapes your experience of the world. And I think then my lovely dad, he just, to this day, it's like that trauma happened yesterday. To this day, it's like it was yesterday that we lost my sister. So he, his way of dealing with the grief was quite self-destructive and he's still very much on that path. So that you know, that is another, I guess, another reason, just that understanding and that that being a part of that story as well, along with the grief, it's just given me so much insight and compassion to help me deal with what could otherwise be a heck of a lot of pain and potentially Absolutely. broken relationships. So I think it's mm. part of my story, part of the way that my mum's kind of taught me. Sometimes I wonder whether it's just, you know, part of my DNA, this hunger for, I guess, just digging a little deeper into people so that that's that's there you know that's in my core and I I did my I did a psychology degree absolutely loved it and then I think I wasn't allowed to do any other further training until I was 25 so I worked in marketing for a bit I was good at it but I hated it I was good at it because <laughs> I was so worried about forgetting things that I would just be on top of it so I did kind of a lot of the admin side of different advertising marketing accounts so as soon as I could I embarked on doing the masters and yeah just kind of stepped into what I felt I was made for really well absolutely and I certainly believe that our experiences shape our purpose and sometimes drive us to what we were always meant to do but to happen so young in such a traumatic way I suppose was was very difficult did you get therapy in childhood you know from the age of 10 and into your teens did you experience therapy yeah so I did bits and pieces off the back of some of the symptoms of the trauma. So I had emetophobia, which is actually really common. It's a fear of vomiting. And that took, you know, took so much energy and took so much joy out of my younger years that I did have a bit of therapy for that. But I actually was very much a, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I didn't want to add to anything. Like, you know, I saw my parents going mm. through the loss of their daughter and my brother who grieved differently to me, he really felt all the emotions. Like he, you know, we'd we'd be kind of playing and then come bedtime, he would be crying until he slept. Whereas me, I just wrapped myself up. I wrapped myself into this neat little parcel and I didn't want to add anything to what my parents were feeling. So I guess I didn't have therapy because, you know, on the surface, I seemed fine. Or at least to myself, I felt fine. It was more later in life when I um, embarked on the journey of becoming a therapist and you have to have therapy. And I thought, you know, this is my tick box. I've got to do this. It's a bit of a tick box thing. And then thus began the process of unraveling in quite a painful, but life-changing, freeing way that enabled me to start living in a way that perhaps I hadn't been able to when I was just trying to be easy and neat. And did that come as a shock to you to realise that you had all this trauma, but really hadn't been aware physically or emotionally aware of it? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, if we have the tidiest home and it looks really tidy, we can kid ourselves that behind the doors, 
if you open that cupboard it'll all come tumbling out and it's <laughs> I've actually had the same therapist since what year was it 2009 so a long time she's been my therapist for she wow. knows a lot of stuff and I remember those early days I didn't even drink her water years I was thirsty often and I might bring my own water or I knew that there was a glass of water sitting right next to me you know thus was the fear of not burdening or needing from anyone else that I wouldn't even drink the water that she put there for me and I remember her saying once you're so neat it's like there's no space for me at all you were conforming to yeah being the good girl or the yeah the perfect daughter or sibling or whatever to I suppose appease the household and make things easier for everyone else but in doing so squashed you the real you yeah, it became, it became a way of life. And I think often, you know, as a therapist, this is what I work with so often, I see so often is that the coping mechanisms that we grab onto in those times of stress or overwhelm or trauma, you know, they so often then become the way of life. Yeah. And that's when they become problematic because actually they might serve us. And I, I think after the pandemic, you know, I think what we're seeing now is so many people have grabbed onto things. It might, and commonly, you know, that for mums, Uh, in my friendship groups and beyond it's been things like alcohol and escapism into social media and now you know and and actually at points people just needed to anesthetize things so that they could so that they could carry on because there was nothing out like all the normal things that would have served that purpose were taken off the table or at least you know even digitally those relationships it's not the same so we kind of numb and then you know I'm seeing and and feeling this myself is that some of those things that we've grabbed onto they're just not they're not serving us anymore. So that perfectionism, that neatness for me, it stifled. It was fear. It was fear-filled. And it, yeah, it does not a, a happy life make. No, and your physical body can end up taking the brunt of it because energetically you're holding so tight. And I presume with a lot of that came control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, controlling what other, because ultimately yeah. you're trying to control what other people think. You know, I think yeah. often we think mm-hmm. of this, you know, this control of, of the self. And that manifested in lots of different ways around kind of for me, kind of definitely around eating. That was a big part of my journey, just really trying to control that to the nth degree and exercise, you know, anything that I could control, I did. But I think also what we often don't recognize in this control is that we're also trying to control other people. We're trying to control and manage what they think of us as well. So it's absolutely exhausting. Yeah. Utterly yeah. exhausting and totally fear-filled. And I think it's that think it like, makes us free, but it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And you were a young girl doing some very complex, strategic, subconscious behaviors and thoughts and strategies. Isn't it amazing how for safety, we instinctively go to those places to make ourselves feel better? Mm, yeah. I mean, we're amazing human beings, really. Yeah. And I think so many people who were on that kind of training therapy training journey with me they went most of all I think to understand themselves as well whether they knew it or not and I remember one of the lecturers saying that when you train as a therapist you get the therapy you needed amazing and that's not what we want to think about ourselves we want to think you know we go into it being like I'm good I want to help people I want to help people but you know so often it's actually yeah but what about you Mm. like are you the helper are you the person that's always offering the advice or the comfort or the supportive, you know, the words or the arm around the shoulder, but who's doing that for you? How easy is it for you to let others be that to you too? We need that. It needs yeah. to be a two-way street. It has to. Yeah. And how did you 
decide which therapy was for you. Because I literally just did a Google search the other day on types of therapy. And there's hundreds. Oh, wow. um, yeah. How did you know which was the right for you? Well, I think she did me a good deal because I was a student and I don't think I contacted many and it worked the time that she <laughs> that she had available. And she's quite psychodynamic. So for those who don't know, it's quite, you know, it's quite um, analytical. It's it can feel it can feel like actually you're the only person really in that relationship who anyone knows. You know, I don't really know much about her at all still mm-hmm. to this day. And I found that absolutely brutal and squirmingly uncomfortable (laughs) because it was like she was holding up a mirror you know I thrive in those relationships you know when people are just warm and you know you know they're kind and they're warm and in time you know I think she was a therapist I needed but not the therapist I felt I didn't find it comfortable at all and do you think you would have stuck with it like because you were literally forced into that room because of your training would you have stuck with that style I don't know Probably not. I think I would have gone to my comfort zone as someone that was just really chatty and conversational. But actually, you know, I I did actually, I had a therapist at university just just for a short while and I I spoke my way out of therapy. You know, I know to give the answers. I know what people (laughs) want to hear. You know, I know how to tell my story in a way that sounds like I've got it all figured out because that was a coping mechanism for me. So I think as soon as I decided that actually I didn't want to do it anymore, you know, as far as she knew, I was, I was doing great and I was fine and I could go and fly free now. But this, you know, my therapist now, she, she wasn't having any of that. She would just make these observations about, as you know, I said, you know, it's like, there's no space for me. You you think you've got it so sorted out that what can I add? And I never forget that. And it was how many years ago. And I think she just, she got it. She saw it. And yeah, I mean, there are so many different kinds of therapy. I think ultimately the most important thing of all is the relationship. We can get caught up on the training when we're looking online and the different approaches, but actually the way people work changes. Mm. You know, therapists are as individual as people themselves. And I, I often encourage people to try, you know, have a little initial conversation with two or three and see oh, which one did you feel like actually you could really go there with them. Yeah, it's like, I suppose the term people by people, isn't it? You're you're connecting with that person with the trust that they'll support you with the tools that they have, regardless of those tools. Yeah, definitely. And it's not always the person that you feel most comfortable with in the sense that that's that's a dynamic that you're used to. It might be, you know, that actually that was quite uncomfortable, but man, that person really saw me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so maybe the uncomfortable is required. Sometimes, Mm. you know, therapy isn't the most comfortable experience, (laughs) but it can be totally life-changing. And some of it is being you know, the fact that you're being held a mirror, you know, someone's holding a mirror up and showing you some of these things perhaps that you didn't realize or you were hiding from about yourself. And I think we often seek comfort, don't we? Like we're taught to seek comfort, we're sold comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, why why spend all that time doing this when you could just do the fast track version? There's many <laughs> fast track versions of therapy out there, apparently, you know, but some of the, the best work is the messy stuff, the uncomfortable stuff. Yeah. And when you break through that, what do you get on the other side? Oh, freedom, freedom, really. And just seeing yourself in it, just seeing the world in a completely different way. And I think like Know Your Worth, the second book I wrote, is all about this. It's about, you know, we've got the world will tell us who to be and how to be. And and actually, you know, the biggest thing that we can ever do is that that process of undoing. You know, who am I actually? What are my feelings? What do I want? What do I need? 
what makes me happy what brings me joy and it's not always about seeking those things it's just about knowing those things and validating your your voice and finding your voice and yeah so can therapy consciously and cognitively bring you back to you the true you that's the aim Mm. yeah definitely and removing some of those boundaries and those barriers that often stand in the way of living a full life and by full life I don't just mean the full happy the wonder of it all I mean you know the clarity and the mess and the trust that pain moves and changes shape and yeah just being able to be yourself within it rather than escaping numbing running running, which we're taught we're being taught to do by the world Mm. we're being taught to take the shortcuts taught to take the comfortable route and I'm seeing you know people are people are like I guess there's a hunger now for for more authenticity, especially after, you know, that last number of years when we're just so immersed in social media and we're like, there's got to be more. And people are swimming, you know, people are swimming in cold water and <laughs> they're wanting to feel present and alive and people are putting their phones down and, you know, people are having hard conversations. And I think there's just, after this last couple of years, I feel like there's, yeah, stirring hunger for presence and authenticity. Yeah, and a gratitude for life you know because there was a time there where we couldn't see beyond the place we were in collectively which didn't look good and now we have light at the end of the tunnel and I suppose there's an appreciation for that the gratitude for the everyday um gratitude for our kids being back at school yeah <laughs> very yeah. grateful for that one um there's a shift there's a shift happening isn't it in the last few years and and it feels like you've been on the cusp of that shift with your books and and almost knowing where people are going next on their journey. Do you feel like that? Because you, you, you're connecting with so many people in a very deep way. Do you get a sense of these things? So much of what I say is based on my own journey because I feel like it cuts through the shame a little bit for other people when I use myself as a case study because then I can be really open and honest and I have real confidence that I am not alone because I have the privilege of seeing behind you know, so many people's doors Mm. into the messy bits. So when I'm talking about intrusive thoughts or I'm talking about low self-worth or whatever it is, social anxiety, some of the moments in motherhood around kind of overwhelm and burnout, you know, I I can talk about those confidently because I have the psych, you know, I have my kind of psychotherapeutic insight, but also I have the confidence that I'm not alone. But yeah, I think it's, it's just that message that something might be common and everyone, I think often we can find comfort that other people are doing the things that we're doing and it can it can almost keep us stuck you know I really wanted to address my drinking and just slipped into the habit of drinking every day and really seeing that as my reward and I've spoken to so many people about drinking in motherhood and you know people just the overwhelming response was oh my gosh like you need it don't worry about that like that you deserve it and then people be like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking a bottle. Oh my gosh, I'm, I wouldn't worry about that. I'm doing way more and I don't feel bad about it. And I think, you know, there's this danger of this kind of normalization of, oh yeah, you're not alone. I, I spent many nights awake wor- worrying about my baby stopping, you know, stopping breathing or, and there's this kind of almost these anxieties that are just normalized. And I think my mm. message is that just because it's common, it doesn't need to be your normal. Yeah, You know, I think sometimes we have that squirming feeling inside of us that says there's more for you than this. There's more freedom for you than this. It doesn't need to be this way, but it's just being normalized. You know, these things are so easily normalized because actually to address them is so much harder than, you know, to collectively think, right, this isn't okay. So I guess that's my message with anxiety, Mm. with 
overwhelm with whatever it is is that you know there's more just because it's common doesn't need to be your normal you're deserving of more than feeling stuck and limited by these things I love it. It's so powerful. And it's it's the reclamation of our own self and our own power and knowing that there are ways out there to get that back and to break down those. You know, what you're talking about really is mindset change and perception change about ourselves and the world around us. And just having someone to walk you through that and to support you in a very cognitive, aware way, I think sounds like an amazing asset or a it's like a, you're a guide, are you, to, on someone's mm. path, you know, to mm. to remember, remember who we really are. And I, I find certainly in my work, it's exactly the same. You know, we lose that part of ourselves so young and often maybe never really had an, an opportunity to connect with our true self. And suddenly, all of a sudden, motherhood brings so many stresses and other things to think about and responsibilities and the buildup of overwhelm and the perhaps increase of anxiety that we may have already had, but now it's gone to another level. We may have had a traumatic birth. And then all of a sudden, we're just at, like you said earlier, burnout stage and it's too much. What point should we be going for therapy? You know, because do we do it before motherhood? Do we do it during? Do we wait to burn out? You know, what what do you see is the best approach for supporting ourselves? I think as soon as you realise that actually, is there more for me than this? As soon as you get that squirmy feeling, even if you can't go for therapy in, in the sense that, you know, going and seeing somebody, because that's not something you can access. It's what conversations are you having? You know, how can you bring some of these therapeutic conversations into your relationships? And if you can't, what relationships might you perhaps need to take some risks and steps of vulnerability and just test it out? You know, test the waters with a friend that perhaps says, how are you today? And, you know, your normal response is I'm okay. And you don't know whether to trust someone with more than that. And perhaps you just say that a little bit more and see how they respond. And then maybe next time you say a little bit more. And I think it's, you know, we don't always need to tear off the plaster, especially when those things are hard. You know, for for me, for many years, having those conversations just was unfathomable. It was terrifying. You know, mm. what would people do if they really saw me, if they really saw what I was like? You know, there was always this little whisper in the back of my mind, you know, if only you knew what I was like, if only you really knew. So I think that if you're getting that squirmy feeling or you're, it's accountability, isn't it? It's openness of people so they can lovingly hold us accountable to the fact that actually we're hungry for more for ourselves. So yeah, just starting to open up with people. If it's not a therapist, who's around you? What friends, what support groups, what you might be able to start dipping your toe in the water and building up that that muscle of vulnerability so that these conversations, they feel like they come that little bit easier and with a bit less shame. And yeah, because I, I think often there's that fear, you know, how, how's it really going to help me if I open about this stuff? Because no one can fix it, no one can change it. But I think we massively underestimate the value of feeling heard and validated and hearing kind of kind, supportive, sometimes challenging, and, you know, we've had passionate words. As a, a race or as a sex, for decades, in fact, thousands of years, women have not been heard. And so innately, maybe we have inherited this ability to go within and to suppress for safety, amongst other things. So what you're saying there is actually, if we just started the conversation, if we just open that door chink and let something out. I suppose what it's also doing is releasing something from within, like that little valve, you know, that pressure release could 
could let some of that energy out or that emotion out, but also you're then inviting the other person to have a vulnerable moment and to partake in a conversation and a sharing that might end up leading both of you to think, oh my God, we're both exactly on the same place or we both want the same thing and we're both feeling stuck or we both have this desire to not drink um, for a time frame or whatever. And yeah, just using the people in your life a little bit more rather than necessarily jumping into therapy might be a good start. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think no one has the right to hear your story. It's something to be earned. You know, it's that kind of incremental sometimes that we need. And, and I think sometimes, you know, the reason we don't share is, oh my gosh, if I say one thing, I've got to say it all, you know, it's okay Mm. just to, to do it little by little and grow in confidence and grow, got to feel safe. You know, I think that's it for so many people. They don't, feel safe and they felt misunderstood or they've perhaps you know had their vulnerability abused in some way so it's this process of actually respecting that perhaps you just need to start being safe Mm. before you go there and that's fine that's that's important yeah that's it's very powerful do you feel like there is a rise in people accessing and seeking therapy over the say the last five years the last three years two years I feel like people are more open about it. And yes, I mean, there's hugely been a rise over the last couple of years because when you take away, you shut down some of the outside noise, you take away some of those kind of coping mechanisms, perhaps, or, you know, just the the normal day-to-day busyness of life. Then what are we left with at the end of it? You know, when all of that noise goes away and it's just us and our family or just us on our own, what what is there in the silence, what comes forward, what are the feelings that perhaps have been kept, you know, quiet by the busyness. And I feel like it's been life under a, under pressure, hasn't it? So things have been coming out sideways and we've not always liked what we've seen. And I, for me, that's been anger and rage. Like I've never felt so much rage in my life mm. in the last couple of years that's come out in all sorts of ways. And I've always had mini burnouts because of the way I live my life, 100 miles an hour, doing, doing, doing. And, you know, but I had a mega burnout. So I feel like it's almost been life and those dynamics and those coping mechanisms under under a microscope. And we've just seen them clearer. And it's made us want to do something about it. Mm. But I do feel like there is a lot more openness now, a lot more willingness for people to say, yeah, I'm going to marriage therapy. Yeah, I'm, I'm having therapy. It's been, you know, America's had a very different approach and mm. very kind of normalized over there. And I wonder if we're starting to accept it a bit more as, as something we would benefit from. Yeah, hopefully. I wonder, mm. you know, this kind of stiff upper lip, this everything's okay, you know, culturally, collectively for years, we have, it's not been okay to share our emotions and seeing it normalized on TV and, you know, like, Oh God, whatever dramas we would have watched, you know, the therapy features in part of that as normal life. And to see it now becoming an option for people here in the UK and Ireland and other parts of the world is a really, really positive thing. How would people go about accessing therapy? Is it always private or are there other options? Yeah, so there are lots of other options. There are, you know, you can go and speak to your GP and there might be some online services. So there's often kind of online CBT resources and courses. There might be groups locally to you. You might be able to go on a waiting list. I used to be one of the therapists in the GP surgery that would see people for six to 12 sessions. There's CBT. It's quite systematic. There are lots of different access points, charities, kind of local groups. Something is always better than nothing. Generally, I hope to think that 
the therapy you would get, even if you have having six sessions would be really contained in, and helpful. But then, yeah, I think it's, you know, the private therapy is often there's more flexibility around who you see, how long you see them for, but it does come, it comes at a cost. And for many of us, we struggle to prioritize that. But then also for many people, that is just not a cost that they can meet. Many therapists offer kind of low cost therapy to a certain number. So when I was working clinically, that was often, and I had a practice that was often what I do, I'd have a couple of slots that would go, you know, a little so it's often it's worth asking. Yeah. But the counselling directory is such a great, it's like a, a resource of you just put your postcode in and you can see who's local to you and send a few emails and see what happens. But yeah, accountability, you know, if if all of that, if maybe if the waiting list is a while, then there are so many resources as well. Like I've got a whole load at the Mother Mind Way and that, you know, that they're all 12 pounds now. Things from, you know, videos on health anxiety, driving anxiety, some phobias, guilt some resources for self-worth and you know generalized anxiety there's so much there that people are producing out of a desire I think just to meet a really great need absolutely thinking of the the underlying cause of anxiety and overwhelm and burnout and uh, fear and rage and all the things that kind of come at us your book you know your worth really dives into the real root of that. So tell tell us a bit about that and about our own self-belief. Yeah, I think I was speaking to so many mums and I really resonate with this is that, you know, the things that we need, our core needs, like of to feel, to be in relationship, to just be warm, to be, to be fed well, to rest, you know, how, how are those being met? You know, what, what are our relationships to even meeting those basic needs? And for me, you know, for so long, and even now I find myself feeling it sometimes, you know, to sit down to rest is so filled with guilt because it can feel like a challenge of identity. If your identity is in the doing and the, you know, the rushing and the being efficient, you know, what, what is your relationship to having those basic needs met? Are you someone who finds it easier to be supportive than supported? Because you're you're deserving of being supported. You you need that. You're not we're not created to do this thing called life as a as a one man island. You know we need people. What's it like to accept support? Do you feel squirming? Like does it make you want to do a million things? To I remember I used to you know have the occasional massage maybe for a present or something years ago. I would lie there and it would be wonderful. But I would be asking the lovely massage lady like a million questions. You know because I wanted her. I wanted to pay back what she was doing. You know, I I couldn't receive. Yeah. Even in that situation where someone, you know, perhaps my husband husband had paid or something, it I just that, that money wasn't enough. That transaction wasn't enough. Like I had to make I had to be so grateful and so interested. And I thought maybe at least if she feels like I really care about her, she'll feel like she's got something out of this. So do you know what I mean? It's like what what is your relationship with things like that? And and I think the less deserving we feel of rest, of even being hydrated and fed like how many of us just eat the scraps from the kids and call that lunch you know what is that saying like if we were to feed our kids scraps what would that do to their self-esteem what would that do to their feeling of being worthy and loved you know and I and I think that's what the book does it just starts unpicking this and thinking no wonder we feel stuck in a but in a cycle of burnout when we're just feeling undeserving of rest and slowing and seeing that as actually a thing that we need basic things you know I've seen seen on um on your feed recently you know about what we consider self-care now and it's like having a shower going to the toilet on our own having a dentist appointment doing the food shop 
like that is not self-care no. that's fucking basic like Absolutely. And how have we normalized that mm. Mm. well you know i i highly doubt my husband steps out of the shower in the morning and thinks tick <laughs> tick that box self-care done you know and it's wow people in prison get those things mm. you know so oh my god they what, do yeah and if i was like saying to my kids right i'm doing something really loving i'm getting you a glass of water right now you know here's a few sweets but bosh there's there's lunch done you know what what would it do and i think when we when we transfer that to people that we value in our lives you know friends that we value and how we treat them then it just becomes quite alarming because mm. actually that would be that would be neglect that you know if i was to treat my kids in the way that i've treated myself in the past that would be labeled as abusive neglect like limiting sleep you know dehydration not eating enough not eating any of the good stuff not letting myself sit down like if I was to treat them in that yeah. way, that would be neglect. Oh my God. So we're doing and do that you think, ourselves. Do you think sometimes. some of this comes back to neglect ourselves as a child? Like, um, did we not receive enough to fill our cup so that we don't believe we're worthy? Yeah, I mean, that can definitely be part of it for some people. But also, you know, it's down to sometimes what might have been praised in childhood so you know we're very egocentric when we're little we just kind of see the world as it is so if we're being really kind of praised and encouraged academically perhaps and then we might link that love and that generosity to how we're achieving Mm -hmm. so then if say later in life we're not achieving the same way or we feel like we're not meeting that bar perhaps we might then feel because it's that you we've kind of closely it's such close connotations we might then feel like we're not we're not deserving of this you know it's almost self-punishment for not meeting the bars that or the hopes that were set for us perhaps Mm. that we've kind of internalized so I guess there's so many different ways it might be that you you know this is a common story for so many mums is that they had a mum for whom love was doing all the stuff just Mm. like I was saying and never sitting down and never resting you know and it was all about kind of meeting everyone's needs so actually that becomes internalized and then we grow up and that's what we understand love to be Mm. you know so it's not necessarily about fault I tend to think that most parents want to do the best job they can loving their kids but these Mm -hmm. things can be generational and I feel like for me it's been generational the the busy wonderful juggling loving mom who does all the things for all the people for me it's been this massive unpicking of how closely I'd associated that between yeah of what I need to be and this is what love looks like. And actually, sometimes love looks like it's just slobbing on the sofa yeah. and letting your kids learn that, you know, when they grow up, they can slob on the sofa too. Like they deserve to be slow rest. and to rest. Yeah. I mean, it's, mm. it's, that, it's that undoing. And so this conditional love that we infer, and perhaps it didn't come from our parents as conditional love in a conscious way. Like you say, it was kind of possibly their childhood and generationally. We're now at a stage where I think we are actively trying to break generational cycles and change and waking up to, well, I don't want to be doing, doing, doing all the time. You know, it, it's it's killing me, literally. So there needs to be another way. How do we as parents demonstrate unconditional love to our kids when we have felt conditional love? I think it's starting to think about what would that unconditional love look like towards myself? Like okay. how would it change the dialogue in my own mind? Because, you know, we model it, we model it, don't we? And I think if we're beating ourselves up internally or even externally, 
that's a narrative that's a narrative so I think you know it's even as simple as dropping something on the floor you know you drop something on the floor it smashes what what happens you might say to your kids oh don't worry it's fine I'll just clean it up but what do you say to yourself Mm. you know what's going on there do you are you speaking to yourself in a loving way are you accepting of your humanness (laughs) of your you know yeah the fact that you're human and we do these things and we get stuff wrong or we're messy and that's okay that's being human if you find yourself saying oh you you know look what you've done now you can't even do that right you know that's going to come out somehow Mm. even just in the way you hold yourself in the way that you maybe then just kind of walk away going oh you know that's that goes back into us yeah the energy the frustration yeah, yeah just addressing that and thinking what would I say to my child how might I start challenging that narrative and saying that to myself like oh here we go don't worry about it let's clear that up you know that's what I'm trying to do in my own mind and it's completely changed the way that I accept myself and that comes out the more we accept ourselves the more accepting we are of our limits and the limits to our resources and our humanness and you know that we're rough around the edges and then other people in our presence I think can be more themselves as well it's amazing like really everything comes back to us doesn't it and and going within and doing the work if the work is the wrong word for some people because that's obviously the masculine word for it but doing the change and seeking that change and and shifting your mindset but really it comes back to our own relationship with ourselves so that we can say the right thing when our child wets the bed again for the millionth time Mm. rather than go oh god here we you know I've got to wash yeah. thing again you'll say oh that's, that's okay we'll just put it in the wash you yeah. know like it, it just I suppose changes the the shifts the perspective on everything and then everything is easier yeah because what what's in you is what comes out when you're under pressure mm-hmm. isn't it and and I think that relationship with ourselves is the most important relationship we will ever have in our life it dictates and shapes our life and everything in it, the relationships, the choices that we make. And I feel like our attention is so cold externally and in the loudest of ways, you know, look here, scroll this, you know, aim for this, desire this, buy that, you know, it's research this, the million articles and everything to tell you how to fear and respond. But I think it's, it's becoming a very, sadly, a very renegade thing. I think almost to just be like, wait a minute, like what's going on? What is going on? Like just turning back inwards. Mm. And it's, it's a hard thing to do when everything outside of you is shouting so loudly. And yeah, not in a navel gazing kind of self-obsessed way, but just in that awareness that what is in you comes out. So instead of looking outside of you for all of the answers and to make everything better, what can I do? You know, what can I buy? What can I learn? Actually, sometimes it's just like, what's going on in me? What do I need? What do I feel? What's missing here? Yeah. Amazing. I recently had a healing session with somebody and I broke down crying when she gave me the message that I need to see all sides of myself and accept and love all sides of myself. And although I feel like I do more so now, I was crying for the younger me, the teenage me, the child me, who didn't accept all sides of her and and pushed a lot of it away and didn't want to know. And if you think about that logically now, you know, how you split off a part of yourself because you either don't like it or it's too uncomfortable and it's too painful and then and then suppress it and hide it. Like imagine if that other part of you was another person or, an, or a child, like you are splitting yourself in half and denying a part of who you are. And, and that acceptance piece, because it's 
it came to mind because you were talking about acceptance, that acceptance of all parts of me, all sides of me, what we deem as good and bad, which, you know, going up a level from that, there is no good and bad. We're just me, you know, the whole of me. And yeah, that really brought a lot of emotion up because I realized I haven't been doing that. And I haven't been allowing myself credit. I don't know if you do this too, but because you're, you're helping so many people and you might publish a book and have amazing courses and be on Women's Hour. Do you allow yourself feel pride for that? Yeah, I find that incredibly hard, I think. Yeah. I think because I know that there are so many different parts of me and I know that there is, you know, the angry, selfish, like guilty, messy, you know, I know I see all of it. And I, I, I don't know, I think when I do these things, I have such an interesting relationship with uh, with success. The first time when my first book was out, I cried all day on that day. I found it utterly excruciating. I found it so hard having people say nice things to me. I was like, no, say nice things about the book. That book, the it, just read the book. It's not, I am not the book. I am not the book. And I, I don't know. I think my my grandfather was a creative writer and he was incredibly, like he just had this massive gift in writing. And my mum, she writes a lot. She could write books she could write books she could she's got this beautiful kind of way of articulating things and so for me I feel like this is a gift that I have this is a gift that I have that I've been given and I've got stewardship over this gift right I have a responsibility but it is not the entirety of who I am mm. so I enjoy it I love it but it I feel like it's a responsibility to use that well so if I'm gonna have try and make peace when I get I don't know if someone's mean or you know if they give me some negative feedback that actually doesn't marry up and if I'm going to just kind of recognize that actually I am more than that I'm a person I don't I don't know if I'm going to try and change the way that I receive some of those those things then I also have to change my relationship with the good stuff as well and the compliments because mm-hmm. neither make me worse or better neither make me more or less acceptable so yeah I guess failure is one thing and, and success is another, but actually none of them make you more worthy or less worthy yeah. as a human. I think I pinned, I just thought that when I have this book out, I'm just going to feel amazing. I'm finally going to be able to be like, yes, I've done it. This is amazing. But actually I didn't feel any different as a person. Mm. I was still, I wasn't better. I didn't feel better. I didn't feel worse. I just felt the same. And I think it's, it's recognizing that, you know, outside regardless of of what you do regardless of what you produce regardless of whatever what you do or don't you are still you still have the same worth and, and we're all yeah. worthy regardless of like you say that success or or not or lack of or yeah whatever yeah one of the best things i have heard in the last few years was it was robbie williams talking to fan cotton and I, I'd never really heard him talk. I just thought I was in the car, I'd had a listen. And I absolutely, it was amazing. One of the things he said was that I reached the mountaintop. I reached the mountaintop of musicians. He was like, I, I had a world record in how many tickets I'd sold and how many whatever albums. He said, I was on the mountaintop. And he said, I was on the mountaintop and I still wanted to kill myself. And I thought, wow, you know, isn't it? We just place so much on these experiences, on this feedback on these achievements when actually you know it it doesn't add or take away from from who we are and where we're at really in the Mm. core of it all and I just thought yeah that really stayed with me actually so profound so for the person who's really really struggling right now and they might be you know postnatal depression PTSD 
childhood traumas have caught up with them as a parent because I think that can be very triggering isn't it when you become a mother Mm. and then it brings back a lot of childhood memories huge anxiety where do you start how you know something needs to change you are debating maybe investing in yourself and investing in that support how do you take the first step to changing your life from there yeah I think it's that moment of you know the world will want to say to you you've got this you've got this go on go on you've got this you can do this and actually I think sometimes that can be really motivating and really helpful but I think often those life-changing moments when things can start to pivot and things you know the sun can start to creep in the cracks is when you say you know what I haven't actually haven't I haven't got this I've tried to get this and I haven't and I need more I need people I uh, was with my daughter the other day and we were in the car park and she I was like Florence hold my hand and she said no I'll hold my own hand and she literally held her own hand and she walked ahead holding her own hand and it was such a funny sight and I thought man I am more equipped to hold her hand right I know the dangers I see the dangers but she was just so self-sufficient and you know and I think that's what we do often isn't it we we just try and meet our own needs we hold our own hands we think no one knows me as well as I do no one can help me with this no one can you know fix it for me when actually yeah where there is help there is hope and it might simply be saying to a friend you know what I really haven't got this Mm. gotta be honest it's that white flag of surrender and I think often when we surrender all the stuff that we've been trying to hold together and the things that we've been trying to push down you know it feels scary it feels messy but we know what we're dealing with then and people can help us kind of pick through it and make sense of it and yeah and if you don't if you don't surrender if you don't let go to that need of control then nothing's going to change is it just it's just going to keep on going down Mm. that path and it may even get worse yeah yeah it's self-sufficiency isn't it and there's someone who is you know that's my way that's my coping mechanism is to be like I've got this fine don't worry about me no sort it out no I know what to do and actually, those have been the pivotal times of my life. And, and pretty much every every client I've ever sat with on my blue sofa has been that moment of, yeah, surrender of I haven't, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I don't want it to be like this anymore. And I haven't got it in the bag and I haven't got it myself. And yeah, and that's not, you know, man, is it Brene Brown says, says this, if vulnerability was a weakness, it wouldn't be so hard. <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? It's, yeah. It takes courage. Yeah. And faith to believe that that it will pay. That there will it, be a if it feels scary. Light, light at the mm, end of the tunnel mm. and, a, and, a new, and a new world to step out into. And I think we've seen that, you know, the last two years, we've been given that opportunity to assess what works for us as a family or as personally, you know, well, I don't want to spend my every Saturday morning at the rugby pitch or I don't want to do this. Or maybe, you know, as a, like in terms of, you know, there's certain things we want to do for our kids and everything, but if they don't actually want to do it either, you know, it's looking at, the family needs and and saying no a bit more often. And I think that certainly the last few years gave us that ability. And now we have excuses to also not to say no yeah. and to put yeah. ourselves first, don't we? But yeah, I suppose to leave on a very like hopeful note for people to know that once they have that inkling that there could be something better, that there is another way, that there are tons of people out there, um, tons of therapies, tons of support, tons of groups that they can make their way to that will provide that light and hold them on that journey. And to remember that in community, 
you know, and I think we've we've lost that connection with community over the years, but uh, it's becoming more and more important. And I'm seeing it more people on my local beach here meeting every morning to go swimming. I have not yet got out <laughs> with them, but yeah, is my plan. Um, but yeah, what, what message of hope have you got for people who are considering investing in themselves and supporting themselves more? Yeah, so you, as you were talking, I was reminded of this metaphor, love me a metaphor that I'd written about in, in um, Know Your Worth. And it was, you know, imagine this big old house, imagine being this, you know, this big old house and inside is all this kind of dusty furniture because the doors have just been shut, you know, the doors have been locked shut and, and actually, you know, that house can only be restored to what it was created to be, what it was designed to be when you open the doors and you let the air in and the wind kind of whips up all the dust and it's in the air and it looks like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is is worse than I thought when actually people, you know, if you let people in. And if you start that process of just kind of sweeping some of it away and you start to see the colors of the artwork and, you know, the textures of the furniture and the fabric and it's just, yeah, there's a restoration and to what was there all along. And it's worthwhile. It's so worthwhile because we only get to do this once. And, you know, I want to live. I want to live. And sometimes that's hard because it involves kind of looking at the messy stuff. But that is the way, you know, that is the way to then living more in that area of my life and being able to be more present for my kids maybe or you know yeah less burnt out because I'm I've addressed my you know my feelings around rest or and there's there's so much hope there is so much there to be claimed and it's it's often you know I think often we think I've got to learn so much stuff it's going to be but actually you know it's it's that revealing of what is already there what's already Mm. there and taking it baby step by baby step just one room by room or one bit of furniture by one bit of furniture Mm -hmm. often as a therapist you know I might actually discourage a client from talking about a trauma for a while you Mm -hmm. know because we want to talk about other areas first so they start to feel safe and yeah like it's just little steps by little steps yeah awesome thank you Anna so much that was beautiful chat and for sharing your story and your you know traumas in terms of how that shaped you and where you are today in the world and how you are showing up to other people and I want to thank you for being so real and honest um because it is a breath of fresh air in a world of (laughs) inauthentic living and you know the Instagram glam um so I do really appreciate you being it that way and, and all of your amazing metaphors you're like literally oh, the metaphor queen <laughs> um I'm getting inspiration from you on that front oh I'm trying <laughs> to receive your words I'm sitting kind of squirming Good. in my chair a you're bit, I'm Good. trying to thank you so that's so kind of you thank you and thank you for all you do and all that you inspire and what you gift people in your tapping and oh. your your honesty and your openness of your story it really is man now you're doing the awkward and I'm squirming really too is, <laughs> yeah I know it really is such it's such a gift and such a resource mm. and yeah thank you for being so generous with your story and what you know oh not at all it is what I'm meant to do and that's yeah. that's the way it is yeah thank mm. you thank you so much for your time today and I really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please like, subscribe, and maybe leave a review too. I work with women all over the world, helping them to leave the trauma of the past behind, let go of limiting beliefs, step into their power, and create the futures that they desire. To find out more about me, visit my website, tappingformums.com. You can work with me one-to-one. 
you could join my Tapping Into Motherhood membership and community. Or you can tap along with me for free on YouTube. Just search Tapping for Mums. Hope to see you next time and have a wonderful day.